Hello all, welcome to the Chicago Justice so, Show. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about our transparency and accountability work both in Chicago and as it spreads around the country at chicagojustice.org. Read our research and you can find other clips of the show and all the other stuff we do on that site. Okay, today we have part two of our um, part two of our conversation with former C Chicago Public School CEO Paul Vallis. We played part one on Monday. It's uh, up on our YouTube and Facebook if you want to catch part one. We're about the our first segment is jumping in and finishing that interview, talking about uh, city funding, policing, um, a bunch of things. Uh, part one was made basically uh the beginning of that but also challenging him on staffing and also just as a reminder he is a mm, he was brought on as some kind of consultant for the fraternal order of police no matter how he tries to spin it it's like i'm trying to help both people out he was brought in by the fraternal order of police to help them negotiate a contract i have no idea why but hey he tried to spin it he's just i'm a good guy and i'm just trying to help both parties no, his kid's a cop. That's why he's doing it. Okay. And then um, then we go to break. After break, we talk about uh, Alderman pouncing on Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Lightfoot and Superintendent Brown in last Friday's special city council meeting. Then we talk about um, Alderman Napolitano on Fox News. They feel safe there. Him, Raymond Lopez complaining. I don't know what they think they're doing. I don't know where they think that's going to get them. Uh, it's going to get them pretty much nowhere in Chicago, Illinois politics, but they think it's getting them somewhere. And then we are we end the show today on, if we get to the fourth segment, of Javorski, uh, Ben Javorski from The Reader, talking about Mayor Bully, an article he wrote. It's pretty decent, but we'll discuss it towards the end of the show today, most likely. Okay, before we get on to the first segment, I want to talk about CJP's Nation program. We do this every Wednesday. CJPNation.org if you want to get involved. Crowdsource research projects, social media activism, public policy advocacy. Fundraising, if you want to help us with fundraising, you can do that. There's also all kinds of being a social media ambassador. There's a bunch of crowdsource research projects between our volunteers and interns. Variety of things they're working on both local to Chicago, some in the District of Columbia that is centered in the District of Columbia where I am coming to you from right now. CJPNation.org and you can find out more information. Get um, There are contact information for group leaders, for Sydney who runs our nation program and you can get all the more information you want. We meet as a nation through Zoom virtually every other Wednesday this is not one of those weeks, so we will meet next Wednesday. If you're interested, you can contact Sydney or any one of the group leaders and they can get you more information. Okay, we are going to move to our first segment here. This is part two of our interview with Paul Vallis. Um, this runs around 31 minutes, and then I will be back with you. Um, it kind of is uh, starts abruptly, um, but... I'm sure you can handle it. Once again, if you want part one, it's on our YouTube and face YouTube channel, Facebook. It's up on Twitch right now still. So you can find it. And I think it's still up on Twitter, actually. So you can find it in any of those places. Questions, comments about any part of the show, drop it in the comments or chat section. And I get it all here on my little screen and I will respond. So I will see you uh, after the interview is over. I said the other day that, that really the police should be marching with either the progressives should be marching with the police because to a certain extent everybody is kind of getting <laughs> let's say kicked in the butt so to speak yes. to use a milder term i wanted to use a more aggressive right. term no it's but, the same thing it's the same thing daily in that it there isn't much change it's the same thing daily did and ron did it's more spin right like lightfoot changed one funding program for 1 million to 33 million oh my god right? yeah and it's like all right well that's wonderful that's 33 more pennies out of your pocket than there was, wait a minute, 33 million isn't solving what's going on in the South and West sides. I'm sorry. It just isn't going to, it is, it's going to, it's a drop of a drop in the bucket of what needs to be done on these communities. Well, what I did during the campaign, you have to understand, I'm not doing this because like, I'm planning and running against stuff like that. I am a policy, uh, I'm a policy freak. 
Uh, yeah, I always have been. And I've been doing this since I worked for Don Clark Netch in the 1980s and Phil Rock in the state legislature. And that's those are things I've already. That's why I went to New Orleans. That's why I did work for the Justice Department and Sally Yates, uh, you know, and, and, and the Bureau of Indian Education on revamping education and the, on the uh, uh, Indian Reservation. So I've always been. So I'm talking about these things because there are. I want to say there are clear policy avenues out there. This, this is not beyond the city's means. The problem is if you don't do these things, the city's going to continue to deteriorate and the financial situations are going to be worse. Because the only way you're going to revitalize and grow the city is if you revitalize and grow the south and west sides. And there's an avenue to do this. Let me just, you know, I think it's actually easier for the city to get out of its problems financially than it is the state. I think the state, I mean, even you know, despite, despite the fact that I'm always overly optimistic on ability to tackle these financial issues, <laughs> the state finances are almost beyond the point of no return. But for the city, the city's got $3.6 billion in almost in what I would call virtual, virtually it's, it's discretionary money from COVID, $1.8 $1.8. Uh, uh, eight billion for, for the schools, one point eight billion for the city, and then he got a billion dollars in TIF money that they're skimming off the top of property taxpayers. And the mayor almost controls almost all that money how it's spent. Then he got one point seven billion in TIF balances. You're doing the math now. We're up at two point seven, three point six, six point three billion, and then you've got the capacity to actually issue bonds, amortize the interest, and raise billions more off future property tax revenues that will be freed up when existing tests retire. So there is the means to make the type of investments that are going to get at the, the underlying cause of violence in these communities, begin to revitalize these communities. And as these communities revitalize, uh, the tax revenue, fees, income will grow. I mean, the growth will fuel future financial stability and prosperity, you see? So they have the means to do it. The problem is number one, they lack the vision. And even if they had the vision, they, I, I am really afraid that they lack the skills. And, uh, and you know, I'm gonna continue to post and make suggestions and I have, like you offer our opinions and hopefully hopefully some of it will take. Well, I'm, I'm not sure who's gonna be still around in a year or two in the Lightfoot administration, to be honest with you. Um, but lack the vision, no doubt. And we have seen, I don't know what's different in policing in the justice system and in these communities from the last two administrations. We're spending all the TIF money in the loop and on the South and uh, the West loop and the South loop um, in Fulton Market. Um, that hasn't changed. She's just gotten access to more TIF money. Um, that's the only thing that's really changed. And we're still with the overtime. I don't understand I, I, for the life of me, I don't understand. Like I understood like when the, when the unrest happened and you're like, sorry, guys, you have to go 12 hours a day. Vacations are canceled. The, 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 the stuff is getting real. We have to do this. You always knew this was in the back of your head. This could be a possibility. But once that settled down, why we're still in 2021 using massive overtime in the police department befuddles me. I don't see how it's effective. Um, and I think originally Rom, when it happened to Rom, he had that one warm winter, McCarthy's first winter, he had a warm winter and violence surged. Right. And he's like, we're going to go to overtime because I, every, all the experts and I was one of them. And it did said that crime was going to start going down again because we had an unusually mm -hmm. warm winter and it started ticking down, but they kept right. And, but they just kept, kept ticking away at this overtime. I just don't. I don't understand. And for Rahm, mm -hmm. at that one point, it made sense because, hey, one year of overtime, let's not hire a thousand or two thousand more cops. This is going to settle down just naturally. And it did. But he kept the overtime up. McCarthy did. Now Brown is doing Eddie Johnson did. Now Brown's doing it. I don't see any difference between the three of them. Well, the problem is it, it, it's the ter it's not filling vacancies combined, combined with a, with a a, a failed strategy that's forcing them to do overtime because because with these two super units and dragging so many officers and they're paying the officers to work overtime downtown and stripping the districts of local B cops when there are flare flare ups as naturally happens and you've seen flare ups everywhere in the city yep. now 
You know what I mean? You know, Beverly, for example, the shooting at the, at the, at the restaurant in broad daylight. I mean, bottom line is, is, is when you have that failed strategy, uh, 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 you're, you have to rob from Peter to pay Paul to dispatch officers to the latest hotspots, to sit in cars, which is not a solution. And that's not a strategy. So it, it's, their, it's not only the failure to fill vacancies, but of, of equal, if not greater importance, it's the ineffective strategy that's driving up the overtime costs. When I was budget director, the most I ever paid for overtime in a single year was $35 million. And in, in today's dollars, that's maybe 53 million. And what will they pay in overtime this year? 250 million. I mean, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous. So any amount of savings by not filling vacancies is being eaten up by overtime. And all you're getting is tired cops, you know? Right. Right. And if you can't, and it would be, and if you can't do it, if you're up to that 13,700 and first again, do the study, let's know how many officers we really need, really need. Um, but if you I can't, agree. if you can't do it with that many cops, then, and the study says you need more, you need more. This is one thing that separates me from the left. It's like, no, science rules. They'll either say you need more cops or they'll say you need less cops. Right. My thinking about why the FOP doesn't want the study done is they're worried it'll say they need less, right? And the and I think the police department to some extent is they're worried it's going to think, it's going to say they need more. So neither one's going to do the study. But how Lightfoot, how our mayor interviewed Brown, looked at his history and said, here's the innovative thinker that we need in Chicago, really befuddles me. And I didn't know anything about Brown. And as soon as I heard he was coming, I started calling, I looked at stories in the Dallas Morning News and I started calling journalists. Yep. And they're like, here is his playbook. Here's where you're gonna get. He's gonna manipulate data. He's gonna lie to the media every day. He's gonna complain about the media every day. He's gonna complain about guns every day. He's gonna do this thing where he takes detectives off of cars and puts them in cars with their lights on in these areas. And I'm like, he ain't gonna do that. She's like, oh yeah. One of them was like, oh no, 100% that's coming to Chicago. <laughs> and here we are, it's here. You know, if they, you know, if they wanted to, look, they could have, first of all, effective policing has to be built around community policing. And I'm not using it in a generic way. Community policing for me means beat cops, means cops on the beat, cops that the community is familiar with, uh, you know, constantly interacting with the community. There's a police presence there. There's a known police presence. And, you know, not only did, did they strip the districts of their police, of their beat cops, uh, too many of them, but they also uh, uh, shut down the area support teams. And those area support teams, which provided backup to the districts, focused on three things, guns, drugs, and gangs. Or maybe it was gangs, drugs, and guns in that order. But the bottom line is that's what they focused on. And uh, so you've got to build your police strategy around this concept of beat integrity. You don't need a, a mobile 1,000 officer force to kind of move in mass like an occupying army from one area of the city to another. I mean, you could have easily created a special service unit of 300 officers that would be specifically dedicated toward going into those hotspots and then have a system in place where other officers, when they have additional time off and things like that, could participate. But then they could be trained to deal with crowd control. They could be trained to deal with, with, uh, with uh, 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 to go into the, to, to the high crime areas. I mean, they could be special events you all remember how McCarthy, uh, you know, look, McCarthy gutted the police department, more importantly, did serious damage to the uh, detectives division. The number yep. of detectives went from 1,200 to 800, which was just crazy, just crazy. But one of the things that he did very effectively was he had this very well-trained unit to manage the, the NATO summit, if you remember, mm -hmm. when they had that. And they did it. They did it well. And I mean, you could have easily had that done. And but this I mean, it's 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 a combination of Brown and his first de deputy not being ready for prime time, and the obviously and the mayor's office trying to micromanage and and and, and that like not filling cop vacancies and having the terrible strategy that's a that's a dangerous combination and incompetent leadership at the police department matched by ineffective micromanagement from city hall. Right, Brown, in my opinion. Brown earned his firing on the first weekend of the George Floyd protests. 
him and the entire administration of the police not seeing, like the intelligence units, I think, saw it to some extent, but not seeing the protests coming and the wave that was coming in Chicago when the state police did and the Cook County sheriffs did and everyone, all the major departments around the city saw it coming and they didn't was enough to say, we have the wrong man in here. Um, but well, then they had the second, they had the second meltdown in August. You remember? Yeah. Well, I mean, and, it was like what? <laughs> yeah, and honestly, you wanted to be honest. I'll tell you honestly, Mayor. Now, whether you're for or against defunding the police, there were calls from the street for that. Mayor Lightfoot made a tragic mistake not coming out and saying, "Listen," especially after being head of the Police Accountability Task Force and having this big reputation as a police reformer. Listen, I don't know if I'm exactly for it. I don't know what that phrase means, but I think it's time we start a conversation about what right. other responses we should build up. Right, I agree. And possibly take calls, and I have the calls for service data, and we're gonna produce a report on it. We can take away from the police and build up mental health and all these other things. So let's get off the street and come into the conversation. We're gonna start a two-year conversation around the city. We're gonna go virtual until the pandemic's over, and then we'll go into each community. And we're gonna have these discussions. And right as soon as that first set of protests hit and the first set of unrest and kind of took the wind out of people because, you know, Martin Luther King says uh, riots are and unrest are the voice of the unheard, right? And what Lightfoot did is when that voice came up, she spit on him by saying, absolutely not. I will not even entertain it. There's absolutely nothing. There's no discussion to be had. No, that was a mistake. You should have tried to bring those people, the people you could, you need to pull away by engaging them. And then you're going to be left with people that, to some extent, are not worried about being engaged, and then you have to deal with them with how you have to deal with them. But yeah. she should have taken the wind out of that immediately and said, yes, we're going to talk about it. Look at what happened to George Floyd. Look what happened to this guy. Look what happened to this guy. Look, Quan McDonald. We're going to have that conversation. Instead of being um, one of her weaknesses and strengths is she's very intelligent, but she also thinks she can make a decision in a snap. And that was, a, to me, a fatal decision that she did that. Well, you know, look, she doesn't like criticism. Uh, look, uh, uh, the two Aprils ago, when I um, when I uh, cautiously came out and I said, I don't think the city has a, has a contingency plan to a uh, financial contingency plan for the impact of COVID, or maybe yeah. I, I said in May, I mean, I got blasted. Uh, oh, you're He's just a publicity speed seeker or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, and I was actually making, providing some constructive suggestions and recommendations. Of course, three months later, the city was in crisis, you know? And, and, and uh, so, you know, so at the end of the day, I, I just think that she, uh, who knows? She's thin skinned. She doesn't want to, she recalls that criticism rather than looking at it and rather than co-opting it constructively. Yep. Uh, so much of what I've posted have been obvious things for the mayor to do. I mean, look, uh, I've, the city needs a witness protection program uh, for, uh, um, there's no, you know, if they wanted to improve uh, homicide clearance rates, they could do what other cities have done. They could go out and they could uh, uh, bring back retired uh, uh, police officers, detectives and, and uh, police officers with investigatory experience to help the police officers, the detectives work cases to do all the things that the detectives have to do, like going out and, you know, taking the witnesses to and from court and doing all the administrative things that take them away from actually working cases. I mean, there's a lot of things that could be done. These are no brainers. Take these ideas, co-opt them, call them your own, repackage them, whatever you want to do. But she just bristles. I look, the city council wants to have a hearing on finally on violent crime and it's part of the Burke conspiracy. I mean, you know what I mean? <laughs> Look, anyone who criticizes, criticizes her as a racist and and the council exhibiting a pulse is, is what did you call him? Uh, Burger King Ed. Yeah. I mean, she call, she call, she throws out names like Trump for crying out loud. You know what I mean? Right. And when listen, really about it. there is so much blame to go on for the city council <laughs> on top of it. And so- Oh, no and, doubt. Right. And now- um, I have big issues with the Black Caucus, probably big issues if I look closely at the Latino Caucus, uh, for their inaction fighting daily and fighting Rom and just yeah. saying yes to everything as long as they get reelected. And Lightfoot, unfortunately, has found herself in a position because she didn't do too bad under COVID, but she couldn't manage everything else. 
And now she's in a position where she's weak. So now city council members have all of a sudden found a pulse because they they don't fear the mayor as much as they used to fear Rom. And by the way, they don't want to they don't want to do the legislating. Many of them are there just to collect the check and work another job, and take the privileges. Um, so the city council is as much to blame, if not more, for the situation we are in. They sold the meters, and we can go on and on and on with all the disasters the city yeah, council well, let me members have done. With, you got a fifty person city council, which is a huge city council, and. More democracy is better than less democracy anytime, but 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 that's technically it's a strong city council weak mayor format, but it's not like that because the city council has abdicated their responsibilities. And the reason is the reasons that you articulated. These are plum jobs. They're part-time jobs. You have to get full-time salaries. They get all these benefits to get these these really lucrative housing uh, you know, office allowances. They they, they have staff. They can work other jobs at the same time. They're like, uh, I joke that the, the, they're like the uh, the lords in the movie, the, the nobles in the movie Braveheart. Yes, you know what I mean? And they they're like long chain, you know? And they and they <laughs> may know better than to sell their allegiance to the mayor or, <laughs> or to, to the king, so to speak. But they do anyway because they're, they're just thinking, uh, I mean, for, for many of the older men, this is it. This is top. They'll they'll never be in a better position. Yep. I mean, that's why the mayor doesn't get a lot of challenges from the city council uh, uh, when it comes to mayoral elections because they don't, don't want to risk giving up what those plum jobs are. Right. And then I'll tell you, you know, uh, you mentioned about your concern about the Black Caucus and the failings of the Black Caucus. I actually feel really very sorry for the Black Caucus because they don't have the independence that maybe O'Reilly or a Hopkins has, because they don't have the capacity to, first of all, they're heavily dependent on the mayor and, on, and how she allocates this TIF money, this little booty uh, the, the, of, of, of financial booty that they're, or bounty or yep. bountiful or whatever the right uh, terminology is that they have, this pot of gold that they have, where she can simply has broad discretion on how she allocates the money. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, they don't have the, the ability to really have the type of fundraisers where they can raise money independent of the special interest. So you've got like the Chicago Teachers Union. I remember when the majority of the aldermen voted to support the union saying schools need to be closed until they can be kept safe. So I, I went to the forums and I looked at the campaign contributions that the union and their allies had made to these aldermen who voted in favor of it was $2.2 million. You know, you know, a Hopkins or Riley, they can have a fundraiser and all those companies, they come in those businesses, they have fundraisers, they raise a lot of money, uh, you know, to and but the Alderman they're they become almost prisoners of the special interests. So so it's hard for them because they don't have that financial independence. They're dependent on the mayor and they're dependent on a handful of special interests, it's sometimes one or two like Chicago teachers. Union. And and that I think is the reason why they 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 tread so lightly they're not as aggressive as they could be so it's circumstances and i'm trying to be sympathetic here no i agree and um i'm less sympathetic but you are i think generally you're <laughs> right because and i had um fioretti of all people who i we have massive disagreements now but he told me a similar thing he's like they can't raise money right. he goes he goes yeah, why why do aldermen on the south and west sides um unfortunately why do they seem so uh, or seem at least statistically more often to get busted for stupid things, right? Like um, Ike Carruthers, he he got instead of going to jail for work on his ward office, yeah. like his dad did, he went to work on his house. Why? Because they can't raise money, yeah. right? Or somebody raises money, or somebody takes payoffs, and then they use the money to buy turkeys. On it doesn't matter. They they took the five grand. Oh my right. God! Talking about low hanging fruit. And, and for the longest time, that's who the feds will go after, that low-hanging fruit. Uh, right, because you know, right, it's hard to get Burke. Burke is a lawyer, and he's got 10 lawyers. So why did they get him? They got him towards the end, probably the end of his life. Let's be honest. Eddie's old. And right? because he got careless. He, right. Because he got careless. Right. And that's when you get the Ed Burks, because he's got 10 lawyers, and he's a smart lawyer. Remember another Fioretti story? Burke, when Fioretti got reelected the first time, Burke was like, all right, you're going to send me all your zoning, right? And in City Hall, in, in Fury, he's like, uh, he goes, don't worry, it's perfectly legal. Don't worry about it. You're fine. We've researched it all. <laughs> right? But that's how that runs for rich, well-to-do, connected, 
other job white aldermen who have second jobs and are like Fioretti was a lawyer too. He did his lawyers. He was a lawyer while he was yeah. running for alderman. And that's how yes, things was. differ. You don't get, you don't go on the West side and see a ton of black aldermen or Latino aldermen that have both the aldermanic gig and some high paying corporate gig also. Yeah. Right. That's right. This is their gig. This is it. Right. So this is it. You know? Another and, and another reason right. why we need public funding of elections. If we had public funding of elections in Absolutely. Chicago, that would that would eliminate that. Oh, mayor, please give me fifty grand, or please don't pick on me, and I might lose my seat. I've got it's just as much money as anyone to fight for the seat. Okay, you know one of the things that I did that was that is now considered to be infamous back in nineteen ninety then nineteen ninety five when I became city budget director. Because the Daily had actually had his previous budget rejected, so I came in. I became city budget director, and 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 they used to really play the spoils games, where if you were an opponent, and the mayor had a large opposition in those days, you just didn't get anything when it came to allocating money yep. for street repairs things like that. So I said, look, I'm going to take every budget is is going to have an agenda, and we're going to have a list of things that we're going to make available to every ward, no matter whether they're at the time they actually had a one or two Republicans, you know, but uh, but uh, whether you're part of the Harold Washington remnants of the Harold Washington uh, uh, caucus, so to speak, or whatever, you're going to get the same amount of, 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 of funding and to allocate so that the alderman didn't have to beg or cut deals or or give the mayor their vote, you know, and then and it actually it created more unity and less dissent than anything. But the idea was to get at the fact that there are many poorers in the city and you really have to guarantee them a fair share of the resources, even if you even if you have to institutionalize it. And one of the things that I did during the campaign was I talked about uh, a couple of things. I, I talked about what if we took all the TIF money, all the, you know, all the uh, both the current and future TIF monies and um, the casino money. Uh, I had a different plan for cannabis. And what if we said, a third of all that money is going to be black box. That includes the developer fee money and stuff. Yeah. And that money was going to be used exclusively on the south and west sides to invest in the south and west sides. It, it would be lock box. So if you got a billion dollars in TIF money a year, eventually 300 million of that would go to the south and west side. If you got the casino money, it would go to the south and west side. I mean, what if you did that? What if you structured it that way? And 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 I just don't see any of that thing happen. Uh, happen. Mm. Look at what we did with the cannabis. We blew it. The cannabis industry, it's a killer industry. I, I had said that if you're going to legalize cannabis, the city should literally take ownership of the dispensaries like Pennsylvania does with the liquor stores. Pennsylvania owns the liquor stores and then they lease the liquor stores. And I said, let the city only open community owned, which the city would have an equity investment in, dispensaries run, owned, operated by the communities uh, to, to, to sell marijuana. In fact, better yet, um, let's, let's create a urban agricultural economy. Let's, let's grow, let's grow the marijuana, the vertical farming and the, you yep. know, the yeah, let's do that here. And then, and then let's tell the state that half the money generated has to go back tour that has to go back to the counties and municipalities. So what happens? They turn around, they pay, they legalize marijuana. Find me, I mean, is there a, a, a dispensary owned uh, where uh, someone who's black or Latino is majority owner? Maybe there is now because they've been getting some heat, but I mean, where's the community ownership? Where's the local ownership? The city, Cities only get 8% of the money that's being generated. Only 8% of the money is going to cities. And, and they can levy like a, I think it's a 3% tax. We squandered it. You know, I had said, let's use the money. Let's take control of that industry. And let's spend all the money, all that tax money from cannabis on funding community-based social service infrastructure. Let's use it to fund the job training, fund the opioid addiction. Okay, uh, centers. Let's fund the, the family counseling centers, et cetera, et cetera. Not family planning, I'm talking about family right. counseling. The intervention, let's use it to fund the mental health centers. And, and they squandered it. And they're going to do that with the casinos too. Yeah, no, they're, there's they're, no doubt. It's, it's, it's a city tradition. That's right. Right. They can always find money to pay, uh, to be honest, they can always find money to pay rich white people to give them handouts to build stadiums 
over by um, merchandise. No, um, over by the convention center, or they can pay a hundred million to fund Marriott's hotel over there, but they can seem never that was Rom. They can never seem to find money on the south and west sides. And I tell people all the time. First of all, when they come to Chicago, I said, if you want to see real Chicago, get outside the potted plants. Yeah. The north side's pretty. Let me take you on a south and west side tour, and you'll see what like two-thirds of the city actually looks like. Um, and the other thing I tell them is, look at all those cranes up there. All the cranes you see, we paid a percentage of each one of those probably. Yeah. TIF money. And I've always, I think TIFs. I think TIFs should be either elim completely eliminated, but if we're not going to do that, make every... Every person that gets funding through the TIF program, all the developers, right? All of those people, you have to give us, give us, you have to have 95% employed people by Chicago. Mm -hmm. What? No, no. My cousin, I love him to death. He's retired. Now he's a carpenter. I'm sure he worked on TIF products. He lived in Schomburg, Palatine. Well, he lived in Palatine. Him and his guys would come in every day to the city. It's like, wait a minute. Why, if we're going to spend Chicago money, they ought to employ Chicagoans. When we did our, when we did our, uh, it ended up being a $3.2 billion school construction program. We built 76 new schools and renovated over 600 in, in six years. And incidentally, we, I took all the projects out of the public building commission where the contracts were handed out to the friends of the mayor, people at clout so that we could openly bid it. And at the time when we took over the schools in 95, no one expected the schools were going to become a positive in those days. So nobody, they didn't really have a capital program. We created it. So we had control over it, at least for a while. And, uh, but we basically said over 50% of the contract have to go to black or Latino businesses, women owned, and half of those working had to be black or Latino or women, and half of those hired had to be local residents. And at the end of six years, 76 schools later, 350 major renovations later, over 3,000 minor renovations, and we built Northside College Prep, Peyton, Gwendolyn Brooks, and Roseland, my community. You go through the school, the, the Westinghouse, we built all the schools. Uh, the, uh, uh, when, we, when we were done, 54% of the contract work had gone to Black and Latino and women-owned businesses, and 58% of those hired were minorities, and 52% were city residents. Well, the city controls, that's just one capital plan. Yep. The city controls $24 billion in spending every year, not counting all the capital, $8 billion in construction at O'Hare, right? The O'Hare improvements, so O'Hare ex expansion renovation that they're doing out there. I mean, I mean, if the city did target marketing, we did a lot of target marketing where we would target specific only, like, for example, small technology contracts. We only awarded to black businesses, small black businesses. So schools that had contracts under like, I think it was ten, fifteen thousand dollars. They heard. I mean, you should have seen the the growth in businesses. So we did target marketing with demolition and hauling and things like. So we did a lot of target marketing. We hired. Uh, uh, Daily wanted to privatize. He was in a private privatization kick. It was the great privatization. He, Privatize, privatize, privatize. He wanted to privatize everything. So I resisted that and he wanted to privatize custodial services and 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 the engineering services in the schools because he had done it in the city. And, and I said, no, I don't want to do that. So we struck a compromise. I would only privatize the new schools we built, not the old schools. So so yeah, we privatized new schools. We only hired minority companies to do the custodial work. So we hired Minority companies, four black, two Latino companies, or was it three black, two Latino, one woman-owned company? And they got to work to do the new school. You can easily do that. The city, it's $24 billion, not counting billions in additional capital money. You can do a lot of economic development just by the way you, you prioritize the awarding of those contracts, just by opening up the procurement process just by making it easier for minority companies to bid. We insured all the construction companies, so minority companies that didn't have the experience to enable them to get a bond to do the big projects, but they had the expertise to do it, could get to work. So we we brought that insurance in-house. So there's things you can do, and they're not doing it. And they number one, they don't know how to do it. Number two, even if they did, or number one, they don't know what to do and in some cases, they're, 
there are certain individuals, including people in the mayor's office, including the mayor, who are just, they're, they're too arrogant to accept advice from somebody else. Who's going to remember what it is, uh, who, where the advice is coming from? It's the outcome that matters. If you're the mayor, ultimately, you're going to get credit for it. And so they either don't know what to do or refuse to, to, to take ideas that they come from somewhere else. Or they don't know how to do it. And that's really, it's tragic for a city because we're at the crossroads here. All right. Paul, thank you so much for jumping on My with pleasure. us. We went way longer than we, I originally that wanted to. 30 minutes. <laughs> the overtime. Just yeah, we went. <laughs> So thank you so much. I appreciate it. My um, pleasure. Have a great day. Stay safe. All right. Thank you. Okay. We are back. So it's always an interesting discussion when Paul comes on. We don't always agree about a lot of things. I disagree with a fair amount of his um, Facebook posts. Um, I think the solutions that a lot of people like Paul and others push to crime and violence are um, just way too simplified. Um, I agree that I don't, you know, made clear I am not a Superintendent David Brown fan. I wasn't a fan of his um, selection in the beginning. Um, I did the research in Dallas about his time in Dallas to know what was coming. Lies, scarecrow policing, manipulation of data, this idea of sticking detectives in cars with their lights on. No. That's all crapola. Knew it was coming. We have to deal, like I think Paul and I agree that we have to deal with, you can't move a city forward without agreeing the tax increment financing program. Okay. After the break, we're about to take a break. After the break, we talk about Alderman Pouncing on Lori Lightfoot and Brown, Napolitano and, on Fox News, and Javorski, if we get to it, Javorski, Ben Javorski from the Sun-Times on Mayor Bully. I'll see you in one minute. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today. CJP Nation. Okay, we are back. Our second segment for tonight talks about an article written by the Daily Line, but published in Black Club Chicago. The title is Alderman Pounce's Brown Lightfoot Standby False Narrative Linking Courts to Shootings. And there is more on this subject we'll get to on Friday. It's building, it's building, it's building um, from the media. They just don't have the evidence and the data to support this. This is a agenda, it's ideology, it is not fact. So let's look at the article. From the article, this quoting from the article, like most of the country's large cities, Chicago saw violent crime skyrocket after the outbreak of COVID-19 pandemic last year. Brown, Superintendent Brown, and Mayor Lightfoot have pointed to signs in the data that the swell could be leveling off, but shootings and homicides remain higher this year than they were halfway through 2020. Of course they are. I'll tell you why. Bad journalism. At least 90 people were shot in Chicago during the 4th of July holiday week. Excuse me. 4th of July weekend, including two police officers and, and six, God, excuse me, and two police officers and six-year-old girl, according to the Tribune. Damn, got the hiccups now all of a sudden. So yes, wow, shootings are bad, worse this year than last six months of last year. Okay, the first six months. Well, you realize the first three months, or almost two and a half, three months of last year, there was no pandemic. 
Stop doing this bullshit stats that you don't understand and don't make sense. This is the problem when you don't have reporters that know what the hell they're doing. You can't take an average idiot reporter and put them on a crime, crime beat or crime article and say, understand the data and go and write an article. Now, to be honest with you, most of the crime reporters that are horseshit in Chicago anyways would make the same bullshit line. It's just wrong. Bad data, bad data, bad data. So that's a rip on the journalist, uh, the Black Club, and Daily Line. That should have never gotten through. Next. This is Brown. He then pointed to Cook County Court System, meaning Brown, citing what he called an explosive explosion of violent offenders being released back into our communities on electronic monitoring. He listed off multiple examples of arrestees whom judges have released with ankle bracelets, only for them to commit another shooting in at least one case after cutting off their bracelet. I continue. There are two little consequences for violent offenders in our courts, Brown said. The explosion of electronic monitoring is harming our city. It's harming our children. Liar. Liar, liar, liar. Liar, liar. This is also a trope by Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart. Remember him? He used to be relevant to things in Chicago politics. Now he's disappeared. Probably going to retire. I would assume he's got nowhere to go politically. I don't know where he would go. I mean, um, Lightfoot may follow him in the way her mayoral ship is going. Um, but no, that's untrue. Yes, people on electronic monitoring and people out on bail reform has definitely increased. But if you're going to open your mouth like this superintendent, connect it. You have a $1.7 billion agency. You have PhDs in your research and development division, which they renamed to some other bullshit name that never does real data analysis, or truthful, I should say. Connect it. You have all the data. You should be able to do it. He can't, because this is propaganda and lies. This is what they do. So here we go. Also, bond reform went in in 2017, ladies and gentlemen. Why didn't it increase violence in 17 or 18? Or 19, or the first half of 20. Ooh, I wonder why. Let's see, was there something that wasn't involved in Chicago in 17, 18, and 19 in the first three months of 20, or almost three months of 20, that actually may be responsible for the uptick in crime and violence? That correlates? Hmm, an international pandemic, maybe? Okay. Let's go on. Some aldermen, like Alderman Anthony Napolitano, who makes our list a couple segments down. I think it's the next segment, actually. Him talking to Fox News, because that's where him and Alderman Lopez go run, because they, it's like um, a marriage. It's an ideal, ideological marriage. Some aldermen, like Alderman Anthony Napolitano, 41st Ward, echoed Brown's claims, saying the country's constant catch and release, the county's constant catch and release system of allowing arrestees to bond out is hurting officer morale. He traced issue back to Evans' 2017 order for judges not to charge bonds that exceed arrestees' ability to pay. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, bond was created to make sure that people show up for their court hearings. The judges have the ability and always have is to make sure that people that they feel are legitimately a threat, they don't get bail. Everyone else, why should a, if you're going to give bail to people, why should the poor get a bail they can't afford and the same person, rich, can pay it and get out if they're e the same equal threat? Now, I bet what you really get to here, ladies and gentlemen, is this is code for race. They want poor black and brown people locked up and they're happy with middle class and rich white people getting out. This is, in my view, at least partially coded race language. It's certainly class-related language. Don't get that wrong. No. Alderman Daniel Laspada brought up a WBEZ report from May that unearthed hacked internet emails from Deputy Mayor Susan Lee, who resigned on Lightfoot, got the hell out of there last year, urging top officials in the mayor's office and police department to drop their talking points that judges were driving a spike in crime. Lee conveyed data showing that very few folks who bond out actually commit violent offenses with a gun. Continue. 
Are we really seeing that there is a correlation connection, not just anecdotal, between bond reform and violent criminals being violent crimes being committed? Laspada asked Brown. Committed. Next. A few people is problematic on our neighborhoods. Oh no, so this is Brown. So remember, Susan Lee did this. We covered it a month or two ago on the show. There are emails when Brown and Lightfoot started this in 2019 that Susan Lee are like, we got to stop saying this. I went to the police department, asked them for proof, and they don't have any proof. So did the community groups. And Lee said, hey, the community groups like Chicago Cred and Ready Chicago. And the other one I'm not thinking at the moment we've had on the show before. Eddie Bocanegro, go search it. It's been on the show. They went to the mayor and they were like, hey, it's not, that's not what's doing it. We've got data. They, Susan Lee went to the police department and said, do you want to see it? Because they've asked you before and you haven't wanted to see it. And they're like, no, we don't want to see it. We don't any part. No response. Of course they don't. Because it goes against their propaganda, the propaganda. It's a talking point that has no functional reality and, base, and basis in reality. They can't prove it. It's an ideology. It's no proof. So here, here we, this is Brown again now, okay? Even a few, well, a few people, I'm assuming even was before this, but I'll get the quote. A few people is problematic in our neighborhoods, Brown said. A few people killed Jocelyn Adams. A few people committed a murder-suicide this month. A few people for the victim is everything. We see it in our communities. It is, it is the explanation. Violent offenders need to be in jail. Screw science. He knows better than anyone. He just knows. He just knows. Does that sound like Donald Trump to you? Is not Mayor Lightfoot and Brown mouthing off with no evidence to support it? Just pushing in the face of all this mountain of evidence. And not just Light, and not just Fox and not just Evans. We're going to talk about an Evans letter on the topic on Friday. But Loyola University did an independent analysis. It ain't bond reform, brother. It ain't. That's, I bet, one of the reasons if someone got Susan Lee, the deputy mayor for Lightfoot, who was supposed to come in and help with criminal justice matters, if someone actually got Susan Lee to talk, I think this constant BS coming out of the mayor and coming out of the superintendent is one of the reasons. So, right, this is why he goes to just a few people. It's fine. Don't make a difference if they're driving all the violence, but any violence at all, it's a problem. That was a towel. He's lying. And by the way, this is what David Brown did in Dallas. This is what he does. He lies. Spins, lies. This is it. He had a career of it in Dallas. I knew it was coming. He has fulfilled it. Next. This is a pretty long one. Alderman Carlos Rom Ramirez Rosa, 35th Ward, grew visibly frustrated with Brown's revision, reversion to citing specific episodes, saying the city shouldn't be based this. The city shouldn't be basing our public safety strategies, shouldn't be basing our policy on anecdotal evidence. Ramirez Rosa held up a copy of a report published by Loyola University Research last year showing just 3% of defendants who were released on bond went on to commit new crimes during their pre-trial period. Don Steeman, Dave Olson, professors of Loyola University Chicago Criminal Justice and Criminology Department were on the show. Go look, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, go look in the archives. That Interview is up there. We've talked to them about that. Um, we've talked to them about that study. You're pushing a bad narrative, Ramirez Rosa said. If you continue to push that narrative, I'm going to have to say, Superintendent, you're, that, you're, that you're a liar. I supported you for this position because I thought you were going to be a reformer, the alderman added. <coughs> what I've said, my dog wants to get into the podcast here. And the show, uh, she'll come down, hopefully, or maybe not. <laughs> what I heard instead of is the same false narratives and broken talking points that have led to this broken criminal justice system. Brown said he had not read Loyola's study. Wait for it, ladies and gentlemen. Wait for it. But that he would encourage its authors to come to the south and west side and see up close the effects of murders committed out on bond. Murder... The, the effects of murders committed by people out on bond. Superintendent, $1.7 billion. $1.7 billion police department. And you keep saying it's people out on bond. You don't have data to back it up. You can't refute Kim Fox or Evans showing you data. You can't refute the independent review of the data by David Olson 
and Don Steeman at Loyola University, professors, both of them, doctors, both of them, you can't combat it. You're just saying, oh, just come to the South and West Sides. That's crapola. That response by itself should be his walking papers. He needs to go. He's being dishonest. He's lying. He's being disingenuous. It's all propaganda. He needs to go. He won't go because he is pushing a Lori Lightfoot-centered, a Lori Lightfoot-backed narrative, which is doing what every other single mayor has ever done in Chicago, which is blame everyone else for the crime in Chicago, while she does nothing different in the city to change the circumstances in the communities to stop the violence. David Brown must go. And police reform voters need to really rethink about who they're going to vote for in the next election. I can't imagine it being Lightfoot. Her allowing her superintendent to lie and lie and lie and lie. And the reason I say lie is he's got a $1.7 billion police department. If there was data to back up what he was saying, they'd produce it. I know one of the PhD researchers in that department. I do. I know another person I met at Chicago Hack Night in that department. They're smart. They're smart. They could produce it if they have the data. They are lying. It's the only reason they're not producing the data to refute that. Now, the reason is Brown is incapable, like most police representatives, of really affecting massive change to violence in Chicago. So they're grasping at anything they can. What would be interesting is if Fox and Evans just started locking everyone up and the violence continued. Then what would Brown do? He wouldn't be fired because Lightfoot likes his lying, obviously. If Lightfoot was going to be half the mayor she actually promised to be, he'd be gone. He'd be fired. He needs to go. He's just lying. That's all it is. And we're going to talk about Friday. These articles are, are just piling up on him now. The BGA's got one. Uh, BEZ's got one. They can't prove it. They keep saying prove it, and they can't do it. We're going to try to get Chip Mitchell on the show from BEZ. Um, to talk about an article he just wrote, I think, that broke today. It is lies. When an organization that has $1.7 billion at its disposal says something, and you ask them to back it up with data, and they can't, it's because they're lying. And remember, this is lying by the superintendent under Mayor, this is Mayor Lightfoot's personally selected, hand-picked superintendent. She picked this guy, she owns him. He's been lying since mid-2019, as far as we know, when this started. What are you going to do about it, Mayor? You're letting him lie to the people day in and day out in the media, day in and day out, day in and day out. What are you going to do? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, actually, um, I am going to leave segment three and four for Friday. Um. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Remember, if you're interested in the nation, hit up cjpnation.org and you can get involved, learn about our projects, get involved, reach out to the group leaders, reach out to Sydney. And if you're interested in uh, just sponsoring this show, uh, info at chicagojustice.org. If you or your business or a company you know, we're happy to customize a sponsorship program. We'll be back Later this month, I think the third Thursday, if I'm right, um, streaming the police board meetings and we're going to start streaming city council meetings. We have worked out the technology, I think, to do it reasonably well. So thank you so much, everyone. I really appreciate it. Go read, look at Chip Mitchell's article in BEZ um, on um, fact-checking the superintendent and how he just continues to lie because it's pretty good. And we'll be back on Friday. We're going to talk about a bunch of things. One of them is going to be Alderman Napolitano talking about Chicago being a war zone. We've only seen that about 100 times in Chicago. All right. We'll see you on Friday at 530 Central. Thank you. Have a great day. Uh -huh.